You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. We're here with Drew Bragg. This is a special crossover episode. Where I'm talking to Elise Schaefer of the Ruby on Rails podcast. So some of you remember we've done a crossover episode before, but that was with the old host, Brittany Martin. Brittany, we miss you very much, but we're excited to have Elise here. Elise, how's it going? It's going well. You know, I just got back from RubyConf yesterday, so kind of adjusting to normal non-conference life still, but things are going really well. How about you? Going well. Got the uh, post-conference slump where I just kind of miss all my friends, even though I'm really tired from interacting with so many people for multiple days. So it's that weird, I'm so happy to not be there anymore, but I'm also missing it terribly. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we've kind of met a few times at this point. The first time I met you, I think was at RubyConf Mini, maybe? Yeah. Like you have this wonderful game show that you do. And I'm just curious where the idea for that game show came from. And because it, it's like a great part of the conference when it's there. I always appreciate it. So I'm just kind of curious, where did the idea come from? Yeah, I appreciate the kind words. I am consistently surprised and blown away by all the overwhelmingly positive feedback I get about the game show. It really was an accident that it happened in a way. I had told a friend of mine, Jason Sweat, that it was on my bucket list to one day speak at a conference. He was putting on a conference called Sin City Ruby, and he asked me to speak at it. And I was like, sure, but I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. So I racked my brain for two or three weeks trying to come up with, what do I want to talk about? Am I an expert in something or am I good enough at something to like talk to a room of other Rubyists about something? I don't know. I have very low self-esteem and self-confidence. So it's hard for me to say like, I'm smart enough to talk about X or like, I know enough about Y to tell it to a room. The one thing that I did have that I was like really interested in was like a collection of weird Ruby snippets. I had job at a company with a 17 plus year old code base. It was like Ruby 1.8 and Rails 2 when it started. So it's like super old and it's always been a really lean team. It was a little outdated when I got to it. And it just kind of meant that as I started doing the upgrade, I was just touching files that hadn't been touched in 17 plus years. So there was really weird Ruby and it was awesome. I learned so much, but there was a lot of stuff that like I noticed, hey, I don't even know how to Google this syntax. I know nothing about this syntax. I don't know what it's called. I don't know how to describe it to Google. This was pre-chat GPT days. So, you know, you had to do your own Googling. Yeah, so I had that and I was like, I wonder if I could do a talk about that. Hey, readability in Ruby is super important. Ruby is a wonderful language for making it readable, but you can still be weird with it, which is also great, but it's sort of important. Like you're leaving behind this legacy of code. You kind of need other people to be able to read it. So I knew I had that, but I didn't know how to make it a talk. And I thought maybe I would do it like a circus act because like, why not? We're in Vegas. I can be as weird as I want. The talks also weren't being recorded, which was like a godsend because if they had been recorded, I probably would have just bowed out and been like, no, no one can see me do this ever. But it was like I wasn't sleeping one night And I just, middle of the night, was like, (gasps) and I just was like, I can do it like a game show. I can do it like some, like, just pick a game show. I can, doesn't matter the format. I just, I have this weird Ruby and that's what I can do is like, 
what is this output? Like what happens when you run this Ruby or what is this shit called? I worked on it for a few weeks and gave it at Sin City and everyone was like, it was fun. Brittany, the old host, was my first contestant. She did great. It was a lot of fun. My friend Chris Seaton was in the audience and anyone who remembers him, he's prolific at knowing Ruby syntax and he admitted afterwards that I had stumped him on one. So it was like life achievement mode there. I got great feedback, so I decided to do it at Mini, which is where you saw and participated. I appreciate that in it. And it's been going strong. I've done it a few times. I have a few more instances of it scheduled. So I'm excited by how many people have seen it and enjoyed it. I'm excited by the fact that people tell me they continually get something out of it. But yeah, it's a great, it's heavy audience participation. I bring people up to the stage. So it's not just some guy that you don't know talking at you for a half hour, which is, that can be a great thing when it's like Kevin Newton talking to you for a half hour. But when it's me, it's, I don't want to do much of the talking. I like the audience participation aspect of it. And also it's typically, I don't know if this has been true every time, but it's been true the, the couple times that I've seen it. It's been at the end of the day and it's like a nice little energy rejuvenation thing right before everybody goes to dinner or goes to karaoke or whatever they're going to do. It's like, it like brings the energy of the conference up, or at least it did the two times that I was there. And I think that's like part of it. It's also just really funny because some of the questions are just wild, like wild (laughs) Ruby questions. (laughs) It's good. I know a lot of people like the game show, so I hope you keep getting to do it. I like the idea that it was just like a midnight epiphany of like, it could be a game show. Yeah. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good message too, to pass on to anyone who's trying to come up with a talk and they're like, I don't know if I can do a technical talk or if I don't know if I know enough about this topic. You also don't have to stand up there for a half hour and just talk at people. You can come up with fun stuff. Nick Schwaterer gives some of the best talks I've ever seen. And he just kind of mimics what Y used to do, which was really weird. You sort of don't know what's going to happen next. You're like fully engaged in this performing arts act of Ruby. And those end up being some of the best of the conference because there's a ton of really great technical talks and non-technical talks. And every time there's something that isn't a traditional talk, it ends up being so good and so fun. So I would say to anybody who's thinking about talking and don't know how to come up with an idea, be weird. Embrace the weirdness. Yeah. I mean, I like that Ruby is weird. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a strength of the language and of the community is that we're weird sometimes. So let's talk about code and the coding coders who code it. Because this show is really interesting. You've got kind of a standard format. What was the inspiration for this for the show? I had tried blogging. That didn't work out too well. Writing and writing consistently are not anything that I've been terribly strong at in my life. So I didn't think that blogging was going to happen. I also didn't think that there's a lot of time and effort that goes into Chris's Go Rails videos. So I didn't think I had the organizational skills to do something like that. But I really wanted a way to contribute, even if it was in a not terribly meaningful way. And this was just my own. I just wanted something to give out, to give back to the community. And I kind of just thought about the idea of podcasting because I had a ton of respect for podcasters. Podcasts really got me through the pandemic. I probably would have lost my mind a lot more than I did if I hadn't been able to go for a walk and listen to other engineers talk. Like I listened to a ton of the Remote Ruby podcast. I listened to a ton of the Ruby on Rails podcast, Jason Sweat's podcast. There were so many podcasts that really just kept me from going a little stir crazy. 
also because no one in my family speaks code. So just having someone saying it, just being a fly on the wall. So I, I just was like, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. I like talking to people. Like I like hearing their stories and hearing what they have to say. So maybe if I just have a podcast and I just ask a quick question and let them talk for a half hour and then release it, maybe other people will enjoy that as much as I did. And yeah, that was like how I decided to make my contribution back to the community a podcast. Conversations are always so interesting because you're asking the same three questions, but every episode is completely different because the person you're talking to is like working on something different or they've had a different blocker or they, they share fun things. And sometimes you have people who share things that are not even the cool thing they share is not even code related. And those are always really fun too. So appreciate kind of the standard format, but like how much variation there is from guest to guest. That's really for me in a way. And it ended up being like great for the show. But that was really, I need enough structure to not get lost in my own show. I need enough structure to offer something resembling a structure to guests to set them at ease. But I needed it to be open enough that we can have good, meaningful conversations. And I feel like unless you're really type A, it's hard to do that. It's hard to have a really good, meaningful conversation when you've already planned every single question out and every single answer and things like that. Like some folks do it incredibly well. I know that's not me. So I was like, I need structure, but not so much of it. Let's do it sort of stand up y. And yeah, the last question, the what's something new or interesting, doesn't have to be coding related, is my favorite question. I get such awesome scope of responses to that. I agree with you about structure, though, because what I try to do since I've taken over the show, what I've been trying to do is have a list of questions that we're going to ask, but kind of follow it, but not follow it too closely and piggyback off of stuff and sort of try to find a casual sounding conversation in the midst of having a structure. So I'm doing the same thing and I feel like it's worked out pretty well so far. And yeah, the conversation's always going in interesting directions, right? It's always fun to get to chat to people. I think there's an element of it too, where it's, you know, I resonated with what you said about having people to talk to and having something in the community and trying to find something in the community, because that's very much where I was when Brittany asked me. But there is like a selfishness to it too. It's like, I get to talk to really cool people. <laughs> 100%. Yep. Yeah. I've definitely had excuses to talk to people that I don't think I would have gotten to talk to otherwise or at least talk to them in the depth that I have. So yeah, there's definitely a selfishness that comes along with the podcast. It's like, I want to talk to that person. Well, I have a perfectly legitimate excuse to talk to them now. So yeah. It kind of gives you like legitimacy in a way. You know, I'm walking up to like random people at RubyConf last week, just saying, hey, do you want to do a quick three minute interview? It kind of gives you legitimacy to sort of be like, hey, look, I don't want to just ask you one question after your talk. I'd love to go really deep on this for 30 minutes. And having a podcast kind of gives you a license to do that in a way. Yeah, it's definitely one of the huge benefits. And the nice thing is, I think a lot of podcasters, at least in this community, uh, the podcasters that I know, we all recognize that we're fortunate to have that ability. And then we use it mostly for good. I don't think any of us has been like, using it for evil or anything, but we use it to a lot of the podcasts have people who've never been on podcasts before or who just gave a talk and was like, hey, come on the show and let's talk about more about this. I've never been on a podcast before. Well, great. I have an avenue to give you a voice. That's the thing that I love the most about Ruby for All, Julie and Andrew's podcast. Like they are super good at 
giving people voices and Julie asks all the questions that like I always was too scared to ask and had to learn on my own. And it's a wonderful podcast. And I think that kind of it's not that it's junior centric. It's just it's great for early career devs who have a lot of questions and might be feeling like, oh, I can't ask them because I listen to these podcasts and it's two senior engineers talking about stuff that I don't even comprehend the basics of. And then there's this podcast where it's, hey, let's talk about this, but in a way that everyone, regardless of where you are in your career journey, can learn something from. And I love that podcast for that. Yeah, definitely. I also love that podcast. And I think it's very, it is an exceptionally accessible show too. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, Julie. Review and Andrew, shout out. Go subscribe to Ruby for All. Absolutely. As an engineering manager or an engineer, too much of your time gets sucked up with downtime issues, troubleshooting, and error tracking. How can you spend more time shipping code and less time putting out fires? This is a question I'm always asking myself. Well, Honey Badger is how. It's a suite of monitoring tools made specifically for developers. It's the only system that combines error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron and heartbeat monitoring into one clean, fast interface. Sure, you can get familiar with any interface, but why waste your time learning some Franken-style interface that looks like an airline cockpit when what you need is clarity and speed? You won't know if Honey Badger will really save you time and trouble until you can see how it works in your own tool chain. With two lines of code in five minutes, you can see for yourself. Honey Badger automatically hooks into popular web frameworks like Ruby on Rails, job systems, authentication libraries, and front-end JavaScript. Imagine fixing errors before your users can even report them. Five minutes of your time with a free trial is all it takes to see if it will work for you. It just might be the best five minutes you've spent in a long while. Check out honeybadger.io. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with my show, maybe are coming from this from the Ruby on Rails podcast side, the way this is going to work is I'm going to ask at least three questions. I'm going to ask her what she's working on, what kind of blockers she has. If she doesn't have a current blocker, she can talk about a recent blocker she had and how she went about solving it. And then the last question is, what is something cool, new, or interesting that you've recently learned or discovered or potentially even built? It doesn't have to be coding related. But as the name of the show gives away, it totally can be coding related. It's kind of what we do here. So let's get this party started. Elise, what are you working on? Yes, that's a very good question. So obviously, I have the podcast, and that's been a big part of new things in my life. But probably a more interesting thing to talk about is that I've started putting together a course on test driving Rails applications. So I've got the first couple lessons done, and I'm like working on getting a few more episodes done before I put that to into early access for folks to kind of give early feedback on. And yeah, so that's like the kind of big project that I'm working on currently. Very cool. So when you say test driving a Rails app, do you mean TDDing a Rails app yeah. or getting... Okay, cool. Yeah. So the idea is that I get asked a lot, like I'm a big test-driven development advocate and I'm like big on testing and kind of testing methodologies and how to think about testing. But I often get a lot of questions from people when I am talking to them about testing about sometimes I don't know how to start the test or like how do you test this specific subset of things that are complicated to test because it relies on X, Y, and Z or whatever. And I always have, and like usually the answer to those is like I have to talk about more details of the situation to kind of help break through it. But I've been consistently getting a series of the same types of questions and the same types of like topics came up over and over again. 
there's clearly a gap in education on this point because like don't learn testing in school. I mean, I didn't learn it when I was in college. I didn't do a boot camp, but like most of the people that I've talked to who've been in boot camps have said they covered testing a little bit, but they didn't really go deep on what does test-driven development look like. So I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a gap here for a course to be made to help people walk through it. And then also in testing, a lot of the really interesting test scenarios, like the the really interesting subject matter where you want someone to like help you learn it is kind of difficult unless you're working on something real. Like a lot of test examples in conference talks or in textbooks even are kind of contrived. So one thing that I've been trying to do is pick a project to test drive from beginning to end. So over the course of the whole course, it's the same project. And the hope is that you kind of start at the beginning. So you get an idea of like, how do you test drive when you have nothing? But then I'm hoping that by the end, it's kind of more like got X, Y, and Z feature set. And now I need to add feature A. And that interacts with features Y and Z. And like, how do I test that and make sure I don't break anything? So that's kind of the goal. I've structured it sort of similar to a lecture series. So I have the first part of it is slides about concepts. So we cover like the red, green refactor cycle. And then there's like a demo and then there's like an exercise. And then I show you like potential solutions to the exercise. And then we move on to the next lesson. So that's kind of the structure of it. But yeah, it's been fun so far. That that is very cool. agree with you. I think there is a gap in that. I know I did do a boot camp. I did some programming in high school. There was no TDD back in that. But when I went to a boot camp to like actually get into this as a career, we did TDD insofar as like they would give us tests and we would have to write the code to pass the tests, which is essentially TDD. But like the biggest gap that I had coming out of that was like, I didn't know how to write those tests without code. Like I knew what code would cause these tests to pass. And I knew what, if someone gave me tests, I could write code to pass it. I couldn't write a test unless there was code. And I would honestly kind of suspect that I sort of can't do that. I can do it better now, but I definitely am. There's huge gaps in my knowledge on doing proper TDD. So that kind of course is interesting to me, even at my level. I've been doing this for years now. And that stuff is still good. So I I think that's going to be an awesome course and hugely beneficial to folks. Yeah, I think for me, it's like interesting because I have the opposite where I kind of get paralyzed if I don't write the test first. At a previous job, we had these one-off scripts. This is funny. I told this, recorded an episode with Julie for all while we were at RubyConf and I told this same story about how we'd run these one-off scripts. Like they would literally only ever run once. Hmm. But when I was setting it up, I was like, I had to write tests for it. And this is a situation where like, I had multiple people ask me like, isn't it kind of a waste of time to TDD this? And I was like, I don't even understand the problem until I've written the test. Like I I was like, maybe it is a waste of time, but like the tests help me understand the whole problem and also give me like a checklist for solving it. And so I have kind of the opposite where if I'm trying to do something without writing the test first, I kind of get stuck a little bit. Right, right. And I can see that like, It's just a way to break down the problem ahead of time, right? I think we all do that in whatever our avenues are. We have to break down a problem. And yours is, I break it down via TDD. So in a way, two birds with one stone, you already have your tests now. Eric Havelson did a lightning talk on a different methodology. I forget what it was called, PDAC or something, of breaking down a problem. And it sounded super similar to TDD. As I'm sitting there, I'm just like, 
This sounds like TDD minus the actually physically writing the tests. So I think it's maybe confirmation of my suspicion that like TDD is just an excellent way of doing your problem breakdown by, hey, this sounds like it. And you're saying, yeah, I have a blank canvas. I don't know. Tests give me the structure to start doing the work. And that makes a lot of sense. I view it as kind of one of the real big superpowers in coding is like TDD. I think, you know, I look at the type of coding that I did before and the type of coding that I do now, and I can move so much faster with tests. I, at least I can. I, I'm not super dogmatic about a lot of things in code, but TDD is like one of the things where I just like, I try as much as possible to convince other people. <laughs> and I think of it as a thinking tool more than anything else. It helps me think through the problem. And then once I've thought through the problem, it acts as a sort of verification that I haven't broken anything. Um, right. Absolutely. And like sort of another kind of argument that I usually make is that if you have tests where you have a high bar of confidence in them, you don't really need to hold all of your code in your head because the tests will do the verification for you. So if you have good tests and you trust them, you can kind of just wing it for most of the development cycle. <laughs> and as long as none of the other tests fail, you can push to production at any time, right? Right. But getting to that confidence is kind of the key or the tricky bit. Yeah. And you said that doing TDD speeds you up. And do you think it's sort of like that, I'll just call it the Vim paradox of like, when you first start with Vim, everything is so much slower because you're like learning all these things. But once you know Vim, like people who use Vim habitually are super fast moving through their editor, faster than I am with a mouse. Do you think it's the same deal with TDD where it's like, in the beginning, you're actually a little bit slower because you're still kind of thinking through, you know, how to use the tools at my disposal. And then once I've got those habits, good habits in place, now the speed up comes. It's funny that you say that because I am a Vim user. <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually do think it, I think it's exactly like that. I think Martin Fowler in the Test Driven Development book has like a graph where he says like early on in a project, it is more expensive to start with tests. And then later on in a project, this is going to be weird because it's an audio podcast, but the lines, like, <laughs> there's a crossover part. And then quickly they diverge like very fast on the other side of that line. And he's like, until you get to the crossover point, it is faster to just write the code. But afterwards, it is unbelievably slower. And I think that there's a part of this where it's kind of the fastest thing for you to be able to do is to do the thing that you have a habit of doing. So do you think in a very similar way to Vim, Starting out with TDD, if you're not used to testing, if you don't have the skill level built up and you haven't practiced it a lot, it can feel like it's moving, like you're moving so slow. And you can kind of feel like, I don't understand why everyone wants to do this. It feels like it's taking me forever. But at some point, you kind of get used to it. You've done it enough. You are practiced enough at it. You've run into enough awkward testing things, which I think is what really trips people up, is that there's not enough examples of weird testing stuff when you're learning. So then you reach a weird testing thing, but like, now you have to figure out how to solve that thing. But once you've run into a lot of those and you just have a lot of practice and you kind of have internalized all that stuff, are able to move faster in the same way that like the day one you start using Vim, nothing is going to get done that day. But by the end of the month, you're probably as proficient as with your previous editor. And another month later, you're so much faster than you were before. So yeah, that, that was a good connection. I think that's a pretty big hurdle for a lot of people is like telling them, hey, you have to go slow first. You have to go slow to go fast. Slow is fast. 
common saying, but there's been more than a few times and I'm like, I should start using Vim. That's what all the cool kids are using. I should use it. And I'm like two days into learning Vim and I'm like, I just need to get shit done. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Discourse, the online home for your community. For over a decade, Discourse has made it their mission to make the internet a better place for online communities. Discourse is open source and is trusted by more than 20,000 online communities, including some of the largest companies in the world. By harnessing the power of discussion, real-time chat, and AI, Discourse makes it easy to have meaningful conversations and collaborate with your community anytime and anywhere. Are you ready to create a community? Visit discourse.org R-O-R-P to get one month free on all self-serve plans. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your community to the next level, there's a plan for you. There's a basic plan for a private invite-only community, a standard plan for unlimited members and public presence, and a business plan for active customer support communities. Plus, one of the biggest advantages to creating your own community with Discourse is that you own your data. You will always have access to all of your conversation history, and Discourse will never sell your data to advertisers. Discourse gives you everything you need in one place. Make Discourse the online home for your community. So what do you think if someone was to say like, yeah, well, I just need to get stuff done so I can't stop and learn how to TDD. I can't slow down to do TDD and get used to it. Like, what would you say to someone to convince them otherwise? So I think that there's a couple of things to consider here. One of them is you have to get stuff done and so you can't slow down for TDD. Is that because of a constraint that you are placing on yourself? Or is that an organizational constraint? Or is that a code constraint? And the way that I like to think about this is like, one, it is going to impact your productivity in the beginning. And if that is not a thing that your organization can afford at the moment, if you're under a tight deadline, if you're in the middle of an incident and you just need to fix it and you can't, then clearly do the thing you need to do to get done as quickly as possible. But hopefully you're not in in a situation where everything is always get it done as fast as possible. And there is some room. And also just kind of understand that, like, yeah, it's going to take a while. Like anything that you do, right? Like, I love to cook and, you know, I learn new cooking techniques. And the first couple times I make something new, it's awful. <laughs> it's, it's not good. But then you get used to it, you know, learn not to burn the rice while I'm trying to, you know, whatever. But it takes time and it takes practice. And that is part of the journey. And so I would say, one, if you're really under the gun and you really have a tight deadline and you're under a lot of pressure, maybe don't worry about the test right now. But then when you have a little bit more breathing room, start with a small area of something that you're working on where like it's kind of bounded and you can kind of feel out the edges of it. And it's like going to be not super expensive to test and then worry about the big things. And then if it's an organizational thing, like your organization doesn't think that there's time for testing, the only thing you can really do there is to like lobby leaders within the organization. And the thing that I've seen work most often in that context is to tie it to some sort of quality metric. So say, hey, we have this area of code that's really hard to understand and it's really complicated and there's no tests around it and everybody, nobody wants to touch it. And every time somebody touches it, that feature takes twice as long as it should or whatever, right? Twice as long as we expected. And especially if you've done the first part that I just mentioned about like find a small area where you can add some tests. If you can show even like the smallest amount of quality or speed improvement as a result of TDD, you can usually get buy-in from your leaders to do the more complicated one. And then in that case, if there's something that is changing a lot, 
and it's super critical to the business, you should be able to, to get leadership buy-in on testing it. And if you can't, then at some point you kind of have to pick your battles, I guess. But Yeah, <laughs> those are good suggestions. I definitely float on the, man, I wish I was better at TDD because I know a fair amount of people who TDD and it makes a big difference. I do write tests, like I write the code and then I write the tests and then I run my test suite to make sure I didn't break anything, which, so I love having the tests. I'm 100% with you. It's just the writing the tests first is not a skill that I have yet. So I, for one, will be checking out your course to try and up those particular skills that I feel like I'm lacking. So what kind of blockers do you have? Now, it doesn't have to be a blocker on that course. It could just be blockers in general, but I am also interested in the idea of course development. So if you do have a blocker while building the course or a recent one, that would be great to share, but any blocker will do. Yeah, I think a blocker that I'm running into right now is there are things that I know are awkward to test and trying to work those things into the course and like finding good ways to work them into the course. If you start with TDD and you start the project, it's kind of easy to have the test just sort of evolve in the correct way. But like oftentimes, the things that are tricky to test are like, oh, we designed this thing and no one ever thought about using it for this other thing. We designed this billing thing, but no one ever thought that we might use it for single purchases instead of just subscriptions as an example or whatever, right? And so what does that look like? And how do we make sure we don't break this other thing, right? Those are the really interesting things. And trying to like shoehorn those (laughs) into the course and come up with relevant examples, that's the thing that I like struggle through and I'm still struggling through. And then kind of the way that I work through it is I just sort of stare at the screen for a while and then go for a run or a bike ride or whatever I get on Zwift. But those are some of the trickiest parts for me. And this is the first time I've ever put a course together too. So there's like a part of me that's like trying to balance this is an interesting testing scenario with this is an accessible thing for people who are not used to testing or haven't learned a lot about testing. Like those are things that I'm like struggling with at the moment, I think. Have you reached out to anyone else that does courses or like just picked brains of people who do those types of content, whether it's video or just lesson based? Is that a strategy that you're taking or? Yeah. So our friend, you actually work with Andrea. I've asked Andrea a couple of questions about this, about like, how do you come up with a good example and how do you like structure things? Definitely talk to her about it. Managed to have a chat with Chris a little bit at RubyConf. So I'm trying to get advice from people who are kind of doing content that's similar. That actually has been pretty helpful. Like I think that they've given me a little bit of stuff to think about in terms of how to structure it. I'm working through it. It's good. And I take that advice and I let it marinate in my brain a little bit. And then eventually I figure it out usually. I think the course development stuff, it sounds like the end result is so amazing, but the amount of work that goes into it, I just feels like it's so much work because you're not just sitting there and going, hey, let me write a quick blog post on X. Not saying that blog posts don't also take a ton of time and organization and structure, but as we talked about when we were like, hey, why do you ask the three questions? I do need that structure, but I also perform better without it. Like I like being able to freeform things, but kind of can't do that with a course. So it just sounds like a ton of work. And when you're saying like, 
I don't really know how to structure this or how to shoehorn that. And I'm just like, how do you even solve that? And that's why I was asking, like, is that something that you go to other people for? Or is there a course on making courses? That's what I should do. I should make a course about making... You know what I should actually do? I should blog about putting the course together. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I should do. That's a good idea. I want to go back to Vim. Yeah, yeah, please do. If you are interested in getting good at Vim, the piece of advice that I typically give people is, are you using VS Code? I'm a, mm-hmm. Okay. I tell people, whatever editor you... Like, don't jump into Terminal Vim right away. Whatever editor you're using, use the Vim plugin for that editor. So VS Code has a very decent Vim plugin. The benefit of that is that if you do get into a time crunch where you've got a ticket that's like, you got to get it out the door today or it's a bug fix or in an incident or something, you can turn it off and you just have your mm. normal environment. And it gives you a little bit of a safety net of you're not stuck. So you can turn it off and then you have your normal environment. And so if you have an emergency, you can get that stuff done. And it gives you kind of a safety net of like, I don't have to be perfect at Vim starting out, which is like, can be, it's very, Vim is very intimidating because like, you know, I've definitely been in pairing sessions where I do something and I don't even realize that like the person who's watching my screen, like it just moves and people don't, they don't know that I press four different keys to make something happen, but a bunch of stuff changes on the screen. and tried to get better at this where I try to explain before I do some operation, I'm going to move this down to here or I'm going to change what's inside these quotes, whatever. I try to get better at explaining stuff, but it does take a bit to get used to it. So if you are interested in Vim, I highly recommend use the plugin for your editor and then just turn it off when you need to and then turn it back on when you're interested. I will have to give that a try. That sounds good. Yeah. Done that too where I'm pairing with people who work in Vim and I'm like, we're using Tuple. It's great. You can go back and forth really easily. And But if they're using Vim, I'm just like, I know how to move back and forth with a couple of keys. But that's about, I can do a little bit of visual mode stuff. I don't even know how to copy and paste in it. So just, I'm useless. You drive. But it'd be nice to, at the very least, be like, have a baseline with Vim where it's like, cool, whatever editor you're using, I can jump in and do at least basic editing. I feel like for most editors or most IDs, I can do that. Vim is the one where it's just like, well, I know enough to get myself into trouble. I know how to save and exit, but that's that's the extent of my knowledge. It's so much different than every other editor. And I think that's the thing. Like you don't have another example of an editor or any, really any software that works that way. And you really have to kind of train your brain a little bit. And that's, you know, similar to TDD. It takes, it just takes practice. Yeah, it was the original keyboard shortcuts, right? Yep. For a while, everything was, there was no mouse. And then we had a mouse and everyone used the mouse for everything, including when the web was new. Like everyone, it was just, you used the mouse. You very rare, you touched the keyboard if you filled out a form. But more and more, we're seeing like websites that are just like, hey, here's your keyboard shortcuts, keyboard commands to do this stuff instead of having to touch your mouse, which is really cool to see. And it just makes me go, man, it does enhance my experience on this website to be able to do all these keyboard commands once I know them. In my editor, I do the same thing, but Vim is like next level stuff. I don't even have to take my hands off the keyboard, so that could be cool. But yeah, learning curve. So the last one, the, my favorite, the what is something cool, new, or interesting that you've learned, discovered, created, read about, anything. Doesn't have to be coding related. It can be anything what do you got? Ooh. One thing that I learned recently, I was visiting some friends in Milwaukee and they made this like rice dish 
called kanji. And it's like a kind of like a rice oatmeal, if that makes sense. So it's like a breakfasty dish. And I learned how to make that. And it's basically, it's like six parts. Like normally when you're making rice, it's like two parts water to one part rice. This is like six parts water to one part rice. Gets kind of creamy and it's kind of a savory dish. So you put like different things as toppings on top of it. Done like a poached egg and shaved scallions and stuff. That's kind of the newest sort of recipe that I've learned how to make. And I enjoy it because it's like kind of easy and forgiving. It's kind of hard to overcook it. If you're overcooking it, you just add water and it'll get pretty good. So that's kind of like the newest-ish thing that I've learned. That's like a big one. This was a lot of fun. I like doing the crossovers. It's a lot of fun. And I'm glad I got you on my show, at least a condensed version, because I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. So thanks for the invite and setting it all up. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast and Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound for making us sound like professionals. And thank you for listening. You're a gem. See you later. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.